God bless you. It's so good to be back again with you today. Thank you so much for coming. We realize that it's not always possible to travel to a service somewhere and to fellowship with the other people there. So we bring the service to you. And you can even fellowship with others in the chat window at the side of the video. We bring the service to you so that you can have the service wherever you are. We hope you'll be encouraged today as you discover God's peace and His promises for your life. Would you open in the Bible to Hebrews chapter 1? Now Hebrews is toward the end of the New Testament. That's where we're going to be today and we'll also show the verses here in the video just to make it easier for you to follow along. I'd like to talk to you today about the Messiah mystery. This is going to be a series taking us through the whole book of Hebrews. In fact, today will be the first message in that series based on the letter to the Hebrews in the New Testament. Very important verses. In Isaiah 55 verse 8 and 9, God says, My thoughts are not your thoughts, neither are your ways my ways. As the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways, and my thoughts than your thoughts. In the same way, God's existence is far beyond what man can understand. He's not like us. He cannot, we cannot fully comprehend what He's like. He's infinitely above all that we can imagine. Certainly, we make a mistake, a great mistake, when we think of Him as being just like us. But just as His ways are infinitely higher than our ways, so He Himself is infinitely higher than our own existence. That's what the book of Hebrews is talking about, beginning in chapter 1. And I'm so excited about starting this series with you today. Let's look at chapter 1 in the book of Hebrews. Now before we actually get into the reading of the scripture, we need to understand something about the book of Hebrews. It's very much written to the Jewish people, even though the Gentiles and others get a lot out of it. It was specifically written to the Jewish believers and others who were curious about who the Messiah was. It was specifically written to Hebrew-speaking people, the Jewish people. In fact, it was written at a point in time nearly 2,000 years ago, after the cross, right after the cross, when the Jewish people were more sincere in their Jewish beliefs than they are today. They were thinking about the Messiah. They were talking about the Messiah. Now, I'm talking about the everyday people in the streets, not the religious leaders who were into the politics and trying to protect their job and trying to add to God's rules as they went so that they can make a name for themselves. No, we're talking about the normal Jewish people who lived in Israel and around Israel. They had seen the temple. They had an insatiable hunger for wanting to know more about the coming of this wonderful special person that all of the scriptures, Old Testament and New, had talked about. I'm speaking of the Messiah. They had examined the scriptures. They knew the timing for when the Messiah was supposed to arrive. People were even naming their kids 
as Yeshua because it meant salvation of God. And it was a big thing. They thought that maybe their own child could be the Messiah. They didn't know. In fact, as you can see from the writings of the New Testament, there was an urgent expectancy in the heart of the Jewish people that the time of the Messiah was upon Israel. And that was the heart of the Jewish people 2,000 years ago when this letter was written to the believers and to other people who were curious about the Messiah. Now let's turn, as we said, to Hebrews chapter 1. And let's look at what it says. The first verse says, God, who at various times and in various ways spoke in times past to the fathers by the prophets, has in these last days spoken to us by his Son, whom he appointed to be the heir of all things, through whom also he made the worlds, who being the brightness of his glory and the express image of his person, and upholding all things by the word of his power, when he had by himself purged our sins, set down at the right hand of the majesty on high, having become so much better than the angels, as he has by inheritance obtained a more excellent name than they. For to which of the angels... Did he ever say, it says in verse 5, for to which of the angels did he ever say, quoting a verse out of the Tanakh, you are my son, I have begotten you today. And again, he says, I will be to him a father and he shall be to me a son. But when he again brings the firstborn into the world, he says, let all the angels of God worship him. The angels worship the sun. Think about that. And of the angels, he says, who makes his angels spirits and his ministers a flame of fire. But to the sun, he says, and this is out of Psalm 45, verse 6, your throne, O God, is forever and ever. A scepter of righteousness is the scepter of your kingdom. You have loved righteousness and hated lawlessness. Therefore, God, your God, has anointed you with the oil of gladness beyond your companions or more than your companions. And you, Lord, in the beginning laid the foundation of the earth and the heavens are the works of your hands. They will perish, but you remain and they all grow old like a garment, like a cloak, you're going to fold them up and they will be changed. But you are the same and your years will not fail. But to which of the angels has he ever said, sit at my right hand, this verse in Psalms, sit in my right hand till I make your enemies your footstool. Are they not all ministering spirits, talking about the angels, sent forth to minister for those who will inherit salvation? Now I need to talk to you about this chapter that we're reading today. These 14 verses. Now, obviously, he's quoting a lot from the Tanakh, the Old Testament. The Tanakh, Torah, Nevi'im, Ketuvim. The Torah, the prophets, and the writings, the wisdom. And so he's quoting from that because he's writing to the Hebrews. 
Okay, so basically they're in the synagogue studying this every week, and he's writing to them. They know these verses. They know these quotes that Hebrew chapter 1 has talked about. They're all from the Tanakh. They're not from the New Testament. And you'll find as you study this man, Jesus, or Yeshua, HaMashiach, Jesus Christ, that his life is described and foretold in the Tanakh. And then you see it lived out, and he actually brings to pass all of those prophecies from the Tanakh in the New Testament. And you say, now wait a minute. Pastor Stephen, we don't have a New Testament. We have our Tanakh. It's always been God's Word, and we don't need a New Testament. Well, I understand your logic, and being born into a Jewish family myself, I know what you're saying, Aval, but the book of Jeremiah, the prophet, he says, God says, for the days are coming, says the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with you, with the house of Israel. And it will not be like the covenant that I made with your fathers when I took them by the hand and led them out of the land of Egypt. It's not going to be like that, God says. First of all, he says, I'm going to make a new covenant with the Jewish people. And then he says, it's not going to be like the other one. And you know what the Hebrew is for that new covenant that he talks about? He says, the days are coming when I will make a Brit Chadashah for the Jewish people, for the house of Israel. You say, well, you're talking about the New Testament. You know, in English, Testament means the same as covenant. It's all the same. And so when you see New Testament, it's the same as New Covenant. And that was named after the Tanakh prophet, Yeremiyahu Hanavi, Jeremiah the prophet. When he spoke of that, when God spoke to him and says, the days are coming when I will make a Brit Chadashah for Israel, a new covenant. Well, if it's a new covenant, that means that you're not really using the old covenant so much anymore. Oh, it's still there. And its truth is beautiful in the Tanakh. God didn't do away with it. He didn't throw it away. When the Messiah come, the Messiah fulfilled it. He fulfilled the Torah. All of the 613 commandments the Messiah fulfilled. He did it. We couldn't do it. He fulfilled it. He kept the law that he would be qualified to become a blemish-free sacrifice for the sins of mankind. You say, well, wait a minute. I heard about putting the blood on the doorpost of the house in Pesach, and God said in Sefer Shemot Perek Shtemesre, in the book of Exodus in chapter 12, he said, when I see the blood on the mezuzot, a la mezuzot, a bait I will pass over that house in judgment. When I see the blood on the doorpost of the house, I will pass over that house in judgment. That's what God said. 
That shows you how important the blood is. When God sees the blood of the lamb that was chosen as a sacrifice, but not just any lamb, a blemish-free lamb, a spotless lamb, what that means is a lamb without sin. If that lamb was going to be a human, a human being, a man, that man had to be without sin. What is sin? Sin is not keeping all of the Torah, all of the 613 commands in the Torah. And since he kept all 613 commands of the Torah, he qualified to be the blemish-free, the spotless Lamb of God. And then he freely let his life be sacrificed for the rest of us. And like the Tanakh says, all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. But he came and took our sins upon himself. That's in Hasefer Yeshayel, the Perek Hamishim Vishalosh. In chapter 53 of the book of Isaiah the prophet, it says he took our sins upon himself. The sins of his people, Israel, sins of the world, so that we could be forgiven. So when you believe on the Mashiach, the Messiah that God sent, you are putting the blood of the blemish-free Lamb of God, Yeshua HaMashiach, on the, on the doorpost of your heart. And now the saying is true, just like it was in Pesach, Passover. God says, when I see the blood of the Lamb of God on the doorposts of your house, I will pass over you in judgment. Now that's very important because judgment is for sin. And all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. So how do we get rid of our sins? The temple is no longer there. We'll talk about that a little more in just a little bit. You can't do the sacrifices in the temple where God said to do them. So what are you doing for your sins? Are you just trying to be humble? Are you trying to fast? Are you just trying to pray? That's not enough. God said in the book, Vaikra, in the book of Leviticus in the Torah, He says, Blood is given to you for atonement for your sins on the altar. In the book of Yehezkel Halamvi, Ezekiel the prophet, he also says, all who have sinned will perish by our sins. So if we can't atone for our sins anymore because the temple's not there, and all who sin are going to perish because they'll be judged for their sin and be destroyed for their sin since they cannot stand in the perfect and righteous presence of Almighty Holy God. What are they doing for their sins? What are you going to do to prevent yourself from being judged for your sins and perishing? God saw the dilemma and He said, I know what I'll do. I will go forth I will become a man like one of them. I will live my life completely keeping the 613 mitzvot, the commandments, so that I will qualify, so that I will qualify for my physical life to die on their behalf. That's the love of God. But since he had no sin of his own, death could not hold him. So he was risen from the grave, you see. The Messiah was not two people. 
Jewish sages of old used to think that, well, the Bible talks about a suffering servant Messiah in the book of Isaiah chapter 53, but it also talks about this ruling, reigning King Messiah in the book of Psalms and other places. And so they figured there must be two Messiahs. Mashiach bin David, he's the King Messiah, Messiah the son of David. He's the ruling, reigning, glorious King Messiah. But Mashiach bin Yosef, Messiah the son of Joseph, he's the suffering servant Messiah, spoken of in other places like Isaiah 53, where he's suffering and giving his life for the people. They thought that there was two Messiahs. But what if there was one Messiah and he came two times? The first time to give his life as an atonement and to be the Lamb of God so that we can believe on him, put his blood on the doorposts of our hearts and God would see us and call us children and say, now I can pass over their sins. I don't have to ignore their sins. I don't have to judge their sin. He's got to judge sin and all sin is going to result in death. But he forgives our sin when he sees the blood of the blemish-free Lamb of God on the doorposts of our hearts. Now, in this particular book, it's really hard for me to go back and forth between Hebrew and English because I, I always want to go to Hebrew, but I understand I'm speaking to many, many English speakers as well. So basically, he had to come the first time to give his life. And all who believe on him would not perish, but have everlasting life. But the second time, after he's given it enough time for everyone to have a chance to believe on him, he will come back as the ruling, reigning Mashiach bin David, our Messiah, the son of David, the ruling, reigning King Messiah. At that time, he will judge the world for all of its sin. And the ones who have not taken the Messiah's atonement for their sins by believing on Him as, as the Messiah and Lord, those will perish in their sins. I want you to understand something. The kingdom of God is a holy place. It's a place where God's throne is. And God sits upon the throne and He is a holy, righteous God. He is pure, pure love, pure light. He has committed himself to judging sin. Like I said in the book of Yehezkel Navi, in the book of Ezekiel the prophet, he says, the soul that sins, it shall die. Have you sinned? I have. In fact, the Bible says in the Tanakh, all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. And what does that mean? That means that all of us need salvation. All of us need God's mercy. All of us need His grace. All of us need the atonement that He's given us for to forgive our sins or we cannot stand in His presence. He said the soul that sins it shall die. So any person in His presence that has not had their sins forgiven, he will not pass over them in judgment. He will judge them, and the punishment for sin is what? Is death. So what are you going to do about your sins? 
you think that because you're a pretty good person or you're better than this person or you're better than most of these people over here. Or you, at least you've never done this or you've never done that. You've never killed anybody. You've never stolen anything over $50 <laughs> or something like that. You're just kidding yourself. God's standard is perfection. Are you perfect? Let's be honest. None of us are. Therefore, God has concluded all of us under sin. Well, that's pretty grim, isn't it? You mean we're all going to die, Pastor Stephen? Well, no, that's only half the story. God has concluded all of us under sin, the Bible says, that He might have mercy on all. Since we can't get there by our own works because the first sin that we did in life was too much, we needed a Savior. And certainly we haven't even attained 51% of our life doing good. And you say, oh, I think I'm a pretty good person. Really? Well, did you know that God also looks at your thoughts? Oh, oh, doesn't that just get you right here? He looks at my thoughts? He looks at my thoughts too? He knows my thoughts? <laughs> oh no, what am I going to do? Biduke. Exactly. You need a Savior. I need a Savior. We all need a Savior. Because what God said in Pesach, He was talking about what would really happen when His Lamb of God, the Messiah, would come and give His life for the sins of mankind. And when He sees the blood of His Lamb of God, the Son of God, on the doorposts of our house, of our heart, then He will pass over us in judgment. Without that forgiveness, without that total cleansing, no one can enter into the presence of God. Consider Moshe Hanavi, Batorah. Consider Moses the prophet, the most famous man in all of the Old Testament, in all of the Tanakh. God, Moses said to God, he said, God, show me your glory. Moses, God just told Moses, he said, you don't know what you're asking. No man can see God and live. Who was God saying this to? Some terrible sinner? He was saying it to Moses the prophet. Moses, the man that we study in the synagogue. He was saying it to Moses. Now think about that. If Moses the most righteous and holy and, and respected man in all of the Old Testament, if Moses himself was not righteous enough to stand and see God, then who among us is going to be able to stand? You see, we all have sin, like the Bible, like the Tanakh says. We all have sin. And what? The wages of sin is death. Sin results in death. It's fatal every time. And not just continuing, but any sin in your life will eventually destroy your life. And when you go to stand before God, His righteousness will leap out upon your sin and destroy that sin, and you will be destroyed with it. But here's the problem. He loves you. Remember... In 
chapter and book of Genesis, chapter 1, verse 26, God says, let us make man in our own image. Why did he make you in his own image? Out of all the creatures on earth, he could have made you just like them, no spirit, nothing to do with God, but you alone, mankind, male and female, were made in the image of Almighty God. So what, what I'm saying is, God loves you greatly. He doesn't want to destroy you. But by His own laws, and he, he must honor His own law, He honors His word above all His name, the book of Psalms says. God honors His word, His laws, above all His name. And so He will not just set aside the judgment. Even though He loves you greatly, if you have sin in your life, He must judge you. And remember, the judgment for sin is death. God didn't want you to die. He created you to live. That's why He created you in His image, so that you could be His child. He created you to be with Him forever. And now here's this sin that says that you can't stand before Him or else His judgment must destroy the sin in you and that destroys you when it destroys the sin. So God said, I know what I'll do. I will take their sins upon myself. It says two times in the book of Psalms, once in the book of Isaiah, <clears throat> the exact same verse. It says that He looked out upon all the earth to find if there were any righteous any that sought after God and truly wanted to do good all the time. In each of those verses, it says, sadly, he found none, no, not one, not even one. But then Isaiah goes ahead with that verse, and the very next thing it says, so the Lord himself went forward, and his own strength gained him the victory. He couldn't find any man who qualified to be the blemish-free sacrifice for the sins of mankind. And since sin entered the world through Adam, through Adam, sin had to be atoned for through man to be removed from the world, from mankind. But there was none that were totally righteous. There was none that were spotless, that was blemish-free. So there was none who would qualify to be the Lamb of God for the Pesach offering for the Passover offering to remove our sins. So God himself says, I will become a man. I will keep my own laws all the time. And so I will qualify and then I will choose to give my life for the sins of those whom I created in my image to be my children. And then my children can be with me. Now you understand the love of God. Now you see how much God loves you. My Jewish, my brothers, sisters, my brothers and sisters in Israel, in America, in Europe, wherever you are, this is not a Gentile thing. This is the Jewish God. This is the one who called Abraham Avinu. This is the one who worked with Yaakov. This is the one who worked with Yitzchak. This is the one who stood with Hamelch David, the King David. This is the one spoken of by Nevi'im in the Book of Prophets. This is the one spoken of who would come. 
He is the most important Jewish man in all time. And he wasn't just a man. God himself became a man to save you and I. You read Isaiah 53. It's not talking about Israel as a nation. All you have to do to understand that is go back and start at Isaiah 52 verse 13 instead of starting at 53.1. Because there, when God starts talking about the Messiah, He speaks to Israel and He says, Just as many were astonished at you, my people, so they will be astonished at Him, talking about the Messiah and his appearance will be marred more than any man. And then he goes into Isaiah 53, talking about the Messiah giving his life for the sins of the people. The suffering servant was not Israel. In fact, before 1200, when Rashi came up with the idea to start saying it was the Jewish people that were the ones spoken of in Isaiah 53, before that happened, all of the other sages before Rashi agreed this was talking about Hamashiach, the Messiah. It wasn't talking about Am Israel, the nation of Israel. It wasn't talking about uh, Yehudim. It wasn't talking about the Jewish people. It was talking about Hamashiach, Hamashiach, the Messiah. And when it was talking about him, it was talking about how he would suffer, how he would give his life for the sins of mankind. And then how he would bring many to righteousness because of what he did. Is this starting to make sense now? How can you be righteous unless you have your sins forgiven? Do those sins just kind of go away? They fade away? And no, God says the soul that sins it shall die. Well, how can those many be made righteous when it talks about those people who are being saved by this Mashiach in Isaiah 53? Good question. He makes them righteous, just like Isaiah 53 says. So what does that mean? We're righteous before God? I thought we had sin. Yes, but He took our sins upon Himself. And because of His blood being on our doorposts of our hearts, God will pass over us in judgment. You see, it all comes together in the Mashiach. That's why His name is not Yeshu. It's not. Even the Talmud says His name is not Yeshu. His name is Yeshua. Salvation of God. The rescue of God. Mashiach, what does that mean? The anointed one. You know, whenever God anointed someone in the Tanakh, Samuel the prophet went out to anoint the next king, King David, you know, from all of his brothers, and he was the youngest, the smallest there, and Samuel went out and anointed him, and God said, that's the one, that's the one. You anoint him. You know what that's for? When you're anointed by God, it's always to anoint you for a work that God wants to do. A very important work that God wants to do. Hamelach David, as a boy, Hayeled, he was anointed by Samuel the prophet at the instructions of God because he had a work to do. He was going to be Hamelach David over Israel representing God 
for Am Israel, for the nation of God. So when we call the Messiah Hamashiach, we're saying the anointed one, the anointed one. So he was anointed. And what work was he going to do? Save and restore all of mankind who were precious to God, who were made in the image of God, and he was going to restore them. Consider the verses in Psalm 45, verse 6. I read it earlier. It's in and quoted in Hebrews chapter 1. It's talking about your throne, O God, is forever and ever. A scepter of righteousness is the scepter of your kingdom. You have loved righteousness and hated sin. Therefore, God, your God, has anointed you with the oil of gladness above your companions. In the Hebrew, I want you to understand something. Let me read this to you in the Hebrew. Kisacha Elohim olam va'ed, shevet mishur, shevet machutecha, ahavta tzedek vatishna resha, alken mishachacha Elohim elohecha, shemen sasun mechavarecha. Did you hear what that said? It says, first of all, your throne, O God. What? Your throne, O God, is forever. A, a, a scepter of righteousness is a scepter of your kingdom. Who is that first verse talking to? Your throne, O God. In fact, the Hebrew says, Elohim. Kisacha Elohim. Kisacha Elohim. Your throne, O God. Elohim is talking to God. But then look at what it says after it goes forth. It says in first verse, your throne, O God, is forever and ever. A, a, a scepter of righteousness is the scepter of your kingdom. And then 45, Psalm 45, verse 7. Understand this. Listen carefully. Ahavta tzedek vatishna risha alken meshachacha Elohim elohecha shemen sasun mechavarecha. What that says is, you have loved righteousness and hated sin or unrighteousness. Therefore, God, your God, has anointed you with the oil of righteousness above your companions. Wait a minute. We said it's starting your throne, O God. Your throne, O God, therefore God, your God? Who are all these gods? <laughs> it's just one God. But who is this first one he's talking to? Your throne, O oh God, is forever and ever. We all agree about that. We all agree that that belongs to God. Almighty God, his throne is forever and ever. Kisacha Elohim, Olam Ba'ed, Shevet Meshur, Shevet Machutecha. Okay? Your throne, O oh God. Elohim, he's talking to God. But then in the very next verse, he says, Alken Elohim Elohecha. Therefore, God, Elohim, your God, your Elohim, we're talking to you, God. You love righteousness and hate unrighteousness. Therefore, Elohim, Elohecha, God, your God. Well, wait a minute, we're talking to God. And then it says, therefore, God, your God, oh, what's going on here? Something 
that you cannot understand. And that's exactly what the book of Hebrews is talking about. The book of Hebrews is going to show you that God is far higher than anything that you can understand. Can He exist and be three and still one? Yes, He can. Because it said that the Mashiach would be higher than the angels, and then it quoted the verse from the Tanakh and says, Let all of the angels worship Him. Wait a minute. I thought we're supposed to worship God alone and no one else. And yes, that's true. But here he says, he commands that the angels will worship this coming Messiah. And he's okay with that. And now here in Psalm 45, 6, it says, Elohim, Elohim, your Elohim is going to anoint you with the oil of gladness beyond your companions. Something's going on here. You need to have the answers. I'll leave you with this as we go through this chapter. It's going to be an amazing journey as we go through the book of Hebrews. If you're a Jewish person, let's just speak logically. I came from a science background, a senior staff engineer for IBM, solid state physics. I'm, logic is important, right? It's important to you too. Well, consider this. In the prophets, God spoke as the people were beginning to build the second temple, what we call T2. And the first temple had been destroyed 70 years of earlier, and that had been the temple of Solomon, Hamelech Shlomo. And that temple was glorious. It had 26 tons in the holy place alone. And on the day that they dedicated it, the, the word says that the Spirit of God filled that temple so much so that the priests could not even enter that temple because of the presence of the God, of God being so holy and, and present in that place. And yet 70 years later, after that temple had been destroyed, some of these people are just looking around for scraps and metal. They didn't have any gold. They just had some iron and some metal and rocks. They're trying to do the best they can. And then God says to them, He says, Some of you here remember the first temple. Was it not very glorious? And is this that you're doing now as nothing compared to that first temple? And yet God says, And yet I tell you, that the glory of this latter temple, this second temple, this one that would be in existence at the time of Yeshua, yet I tell you that the glory of this latter temple will be greater than the glory of the first temple. Wow. Some of those guys, they were pretty old, and they remembered the first temple. They remembered how beautiful it was. How extravagant it was. All of this gold and precious metals, beautiful architecture and everything. And they're looking at these rocks and twisted metal that they're trying to put together in something and make a temple again. And, and they're getting discouraged. And God says, I tell you, the glory of this second temple will be greater than the glory of the first. Now, fast forward to 70 A.D. King Herod remodeled the temple. Understand that. He did not tear the temple down because that would have caused a rebellion by the Jewish people. So he told them he was remodeling it and making it better. And they accepted that. So he made this wonderful, beautiful temple, right? 
And some people, some of the Jewish scholars today, say that, well, that's what it meant by the glory of this latter temple being greater than the glory of the former temple. No, that's not what it meant. I'll tell you why. Because the glory of a building, no matter how big it is, no matter how well it's designed, could never, ever be greater than the glory of the presence of God in that temple. And the presence of God had filled the first temple. And yet here God is telling these people starting to reconstruct the second temple that the glory of this second temple, the latter temple, would be greater than the glory of the first. But in 70 AD, Herod's temple, the temple of the Jewish people that was central to all of their life, was laying in ruins. The Roman army had destroyed it all, not one stone left upon another. Burnt, people killed, it was all destroyed. Half of Judaism perished that day. Half of the commands of Judaism had to do with service in the temple. And now there was no temple. Rabbis were walking the street in tears, wondering what they would do now. One of them said, well, the time for Messiah has come and gone, so he didn't show up, so I guess we just have to do our best to try to get into heaven by our works. Here's a question you have to ask yourself, Jewish brother and sister. Be logical. Be brave. Don't be afraid of this question. Why was the temple destroyed? Because God said the glory of that temple would be greater. And yet no one could remember the temple being greater than the first temple when God's presence filled that first temple. Why was the temple destroyed? There's only four possible answers. And I'm going to say some things that sound crazy, but I, it doesn't mean I believe in them. But still, we have to cover all the bases. Logically, there's only four possible answers. One is that God forgot His prophecy. He forgot His promise that the second temple would be greater than the glory of the first. He just forgot. I'm sorry, I forgot. Well, of course, that's not the case. God doesn't forget. The second possibility is no matter how unlikely it is, is God lied and He never intended to make that temple more glorious than the first temple. Well, the, the Tanakh has that answer. God is not a man that he should lie. That's what the verses in the Tanakh says. God doesn't lie. He doesn't have to. He's all-powerful. He can make anything happen, he said. You see, he didn't lie and he didn't forget. The third possibility, no matter how crazy it sounds, is someone stronger than God came and took the temple away and destroyed it and threw it down and said, okay, here, take that. Well, of course, there's no one stronger than God. Who? Habore. He's the creator of all things. Everything else was created by Him. He is all-powerful. El Shaddai. He is God Almighty. So He didn't forget. He didn't lie. And no one else destroyed it. There's only one more possible answer. Listen to this. Listen carefully, my brother and sister. This is the most important thing you will hear. If he didn't lie, he didn't forget, no one else destroyed it, then the only option left is 
He did something in that temple, that latter temple, that was more glorious than his presence in the former temple, and we missed it. Do you see that? We missed it. The Mashiach had been spoken of throughout the Tanakh. A Torah, Nevi'im, Ketuvim. He had been spoken of throughout the Tanakh. And he came. And as his custom was, the New Testament says, he would go into that temple and teach the people daily. And right outside its walls, he would die on a cross of wood and give his life for the sins of mankind to restore us, to bring us back to God so that we could stand before God without being judged for our sins. Who hakipoa shalano? Who hakipoa Elohim atoninu? He is the Lord our God's sacrifice for our sins. And we missed it. We missed it. We thought he was just another man. And yet, three days after he was crucified, he was raised from the dead by the mighty power of God. And now he awaits for all of those who will to come to him, and then he will return and execute judgment upon all sin. But I want you to know something. He does not desire to judge you. He loves you. That's what the Bible says in John 3.16 in the New Testament. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whoever, me, you, that whoever believes in him would not perish but have everlasting life. Whoever believes. The greatest gift for the smallest price, simply believe. You could never earn your own salvation no matter how hard you try. God is perfect. You can't just do half of your life or 51% doing good things. It's not enough because you can't stand in the presence of a perfect, righteous, and holy God who is committed to judging sin with death. But yet he doesn't want to judge you, but you're a sinner. What are you going to do? Malasot. What are you going to do? What are you going to do about your sins? For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son, that whoever believes in him shall not perish, but have everlasting life. What are you going to do about your sins? Why don't you give your life to him today? Today, right now, if you call out to him, he will hear that cry, he will answer you, and he'll rescue you. He'll shine His light on your heart and you'll be given newness of life. He'll change you into a new creation, a new person. He'll throw all that bad history, all that sin away. You'll be completely new. And He'll give you everlasting life in heaven with Him. That's what you were designed for. That's where He wants you. He loves you. He wants you with Him. That's guaranteed by God Himself because the God who does this is beautiful and wonderful and loves you with the greatest love that you can imagine. Amen.
We want to give you an opportunity to believe on Jesus as the Messiah and Lord today. To receive God's peace in your life, you can be saved and given everlasting life in heaven by simply believing that God sent His one and only Son into the world to save us from judgment. Just pray something like this. Say, God, I want to know you. I want to have real peace in life. I believe on your Son, Jesus Christ, as Lord. Please forgive all my sins. I give my life to you. Thank you, Lord. Amen. If you prayed that prayer, God heard you, and He's already started working in your life. Over time, you'll begin to see the wonderful changes He's making in your heart. Get in a good Bible-based church. Learn about Him and His Word. Talk to Him every day in prayer. He's going to do amazing things in your life.